You'll have to bear with me a little bit this morning. I found out about 15 seconds ago that somehow or another my pages got out of order on this and my computer deleted the file. So, um, many in this room or several in this room have actually already heard this talk before. I apologize for the repeat, but it's been a while. Hopefully there's still some to glean from it. Um, for those of us, Lord willing, that will be in the gathering at Clinton, the class I'll be giving there shoots off from this one a little bit. Um, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 17. If you'll turn there. We're going to be talking about David and Goliath. When I was little, the account of David and Goliath was one of my favorite stories. I think the same can be said for most of us who were raised with the Bible. There's a good reason for that. There's something in this account that speaks to all of us. This idea of this young shepherd's son, probably 16 or 17 years old, standing against a roughly nine-foot-tall, battle-hardened giant in the name of God, with nothing but a sling and five smooth stones that is naturally so inspiring to us. Even most people of the world are at least somewhat familiar with the premise of this particular story in Scripture. We teach this account to our children to teach them about faith in the face of great challenges. This account gets brought up, at least in passing, nearly every time a class or exhortation is given about David. And we talk about it ourselves often. We talk about how amazing it is that such a young boy had already developed such faith as to stand against this giant. We talk about how this event went on to really shape the rest of David's life. However, there's something here that we don't often talk about. We don't often talk about what's really going on in this story and how we can apply that to our own lives. We don't hear it talked about much, too much, in adult classes or adult exhortations. At least I haven't in my lifetime. At its core, the story of David and Goliath isn't about a battle between a young shepherd's son and a giant warrior. It isn't about the children of Israel being saved from being enslaved by their enemies once again. At its core, David and Goliath is about something much simpler and much more familiar to all of us than that. It's about a believer, servant of God, striving against the forces of sin and the world in God's name. It's a battle that every one of us fights or should fight and be fighting every day of our lives. You see, at its core... David and Goliath is a story about a young man who, when faced with a dire and deadly challenge, chooses to face it, wearing the whole armor of God. There's quite a lot we can learn in that. So let's look at some of the details in this account, and then we'll take them and talk about how we can compare them to things in our own lives. Before we do any reading, we're going to first identify the major figures who are going to appear in this account and talk a little bit about, little bit about who they all were. And we'll start with the two obvious figures. First, we have David. Up to this point in the scripture, all we know about David is that he was the son of Jesse, a shepherd, and the great-grandson of Boaz and Ruth, and had been chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. And that he played the harp so skillfully that Saul would have him play for him to soothe him. We learn later in this account that he had slain a lion and a bear while tending to his father's flock. And that he was brave enough to volunteer to slay the Philistine giant when nobody in the armies of Israel would. Next, we have Goliath. A warrior who, other than his gigantic stature, we know very little about. 
However, we know enough about him to gather what we need for our discussion. We know that he came from a family of giants and that his brothers were later slain by David and his mighty men. We know that being a Philistine, he would have been an idol worshiper, and that at least some of the idols he worshipped would have had rituals that involved human and even child sacrifice. We know that he armed himself with a huge spear, whose staff, we're told, was like a weaver's beam, and a sword and a shield. Those will be important later. Next, some characters that we don't often give just a terrible lot of consideration to in this account. We have Eliab, David's oldest brother. Outside of his few words and anger toward David in this account, we don't really know much about Eliab. We know that he was the firstborn son of Jesse. We know from 1 Samuel 16 that he was evidently an impressive figure of a man. For even Samuel was impressed with him when he saw him and thought that surely he must be the man whom God had chosen to be the next king of Israel in Saul's stead. However, we also know from 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, that there was something in Eliab's heart that caused God to reject him. And finally, we know that one of his daughters would go on to be Rehoboam's wife. And finally, we have Saul, the king of Israel. By this point, Saul has already been told that the kingdom of Israel will be taken from him and his family and given to someone else. He offers David armor and a sword, much like that what would, what would Goliath have been armed with, except obviously smaller. Now that we've familiarized ourselves with the figures who play a major part in this account, it's time to start looking at the details. We'll begin by looking at verses 1 through 3 of 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle, and were gathered together at Shoko, and which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Hezekiah and Ephesdemim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah, and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. Here we have the Philistines, a group of idol worshippers who have come to challenge the Israelites to battle. Their purpose here, as revealed by Goliath, was to enslave the children of Israel, something that was fairly common practice at that time. If one nation gained dominance over another through warfare, the dominant nation usually enslaved the other until the nation had been dominated, until the nation that had been dominated could gain the upper hand and get themselves free of their oppressors. We see this time and again throughout the book of Judges. An idol-worshipping nation would gain dominance over Israel, generally as a means of punishment from God for their disobedience. And eventually, one of the judges, under God's guidance, would lead the children of Israel out from under their oppressor's yoke. Here in 1 Samuel 17, we have the, the Philistines trying to put Israel under their yoke once more. Now we have to take a minute to realize what this means. If the Philistines were to take Israel to be their slaves, most likely the Philistines would dedicate many of, if not all, of these slaves to their false gods. They would probably be forced to do the manual labor and the upkeep of the temples to these abominations, and even be forced to participate in the worship of such themselves. For all intents and purposes, Israel would become a living sacrifice and dedication to the false gods of the Philistines. This should have been a fate so terrible and unthinkable to the children of Israel that, live or die, they would be willing to fight tooth and nail down to the last man standing to prevent. However, as we'll see in a bit, not one man of their armies was willing to step into the valley to face Goliath in combat. Now, it's easy to read this and say or think something along the lines of how, after all Israel had seen God do for them in their history, would they not have been willing to fight Goliath and the Philistines in order to avoid a fate like this? It's very easy to think. 
we need to be careful about that because let's think about our own lives for a moment. How many times have we been presented by challenges by the world that threaten to put us in position or in a position that we should be willing to fight tooth and nail against in God's name? Maybe our boss wants us to do or promote something that goes against what we claim to believe and uphold. Maybe we've been told that we need to support this or find another job. Maybe we have a family member who is doing something that goes explicitly against God's commandments, and we know we should be doing all that we can to avoid bidding them God's speed. These things aren't all that dissimilar to what faced the Israelites here. They're maybe not as blatant and in your face. True, maybe life or death isn't involved for now. But we still face these challenges from the world. Do we stand and face the giant? Or do we allow ourselves to be presented living sacrifices unto the world? We'll now look at verses 4 through 10 of 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to talk about the entrance of one of our major figures. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. And he had an helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs, and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron and one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel, and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants of God, servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. I'm going to ask you to bear with me here for a minute. I want us to take a minute to imagine the scene. I promise I'm going somewhere with this and this is important. Close your eyes if necessary. We have these two armies encamped against each other to do battle. The Philistine army is encamped on one side of the valley and the Israelites on the other. The armies line the rim of the valley on either side, waiting for orders from their commanders, each probably shouting insults and challenges at the other. In the midst of all this, stirring falls across the Philistine line. The Israelites see some shuffling from the back of the line, but they can't tell what it is at first. Then the Philistine line splits to reveal what the Israelites must have at first thought was some trick. Standing there towering over every man in sight is a nine-plus-foot-tall behemoth of a man. A man that literally stood as tall, and we want, I'm going to think about this. I want us to really try to picture this. This is a man who literally, stood as tall as a medium-sized elephant. He carries a spear that looks to you like a small tree, and the head of the spear looks like it might be roughly the same size as your sword. Following him is a man carrying Goliath's shield, and it completely hides him. This giant, this monster, walks to the rim of the valley and bellows, in a thundering voice, a challenge to the army of Israel. Choose you a man for you, the giant roars. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. I want us to imagine what must have been going through the minds of the soldiers of Israel at that moment, as they stared in shock and horror at the monster that had just issued this challenge against them. 
How are we to win? They must have lamented. What must we have done for God to have brought this horror down upon us, to slay us and enslave our wives and children? How could five men, let alone one man, ever hope to prevail against such a beast? Your downtrodden and hopeless feeling is only made worse by the sneering and jeering of the Philistines on the other side. The battle hasn't even begun, and they know they've won. They've probably seen this giant tear apart man after man in both single combat and pitched battles, and they definitely don't envy whichever poor sap gets stuck with the task of trying to survive against it. So let's talk a minute about Goliath here. Here's an idol-worshipping Philistine who is almost a machine built for war. First off, he's huge. His size alone would give him an incredible advantage in battle, given the hundreds of pounds of extra muscle mass that it would have given him over the average person. We have to remember battles are hand-to-hand -hand combat at this point in time. Not to mention the height and reach advantage. The Bible says that the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, which would make his the staff of his spear anywhere from four to six inches around. That's the grip of his hand, something that he could hold and fight with. Given that the average spear was anywhere from one to two feet longer than its wielder was tall at this point in time, we're probably talking about an 11 or 12 foot spear. Now just the staff alone would have been a deadly and intimidating weapon. Add to that the broadhead on one end, and the spike that most spears at this time had on the other end, and you have a weapon that would just about have stricken fear into most men by looking at it. It would have allowed Goliath to reach out and stab someone, killing them before they even got close to being within range of him with their spears. Goliath also carried a sword that, would have, that he would have used with just one hand, and would very probably have required two hands in the hands of a normal man. Finally, Goliath carries a, carries a shield that would have been good as a wall to any normal man. The average shield around this time would have been big enough to cover, if held up in a certain way, to cover its user from jaw to knee. This would have made his shield anywhere from five to six feet in diameter. The shield, when raised, would have made it nearly impossible to hit Goliath with any kind of projectile unless you were standing at the top of a cliff way above him. Not to mention, he could also bash you with said shield and do considerable damage, if not kill you. All things considered, Goliath would have been absolute force to be reckoned with on the battlefield. In fact, his presence alone would have been an effective weapon, psychologically, for the Philistines to use against their enemies. Now imagine that we're the ones on the other end of the battlefield, seeing that behemoth staring down at us. It took a lot of courage for the men of Israel to stay there and not flee at the mere sight of Goliath. How many of the men of Israel do you think felt enraged at the fact that this giant would have the gall to insult God and Israel in this way? It's quite possible that many of them thought that they were showing particular faith and bravery, standing at the rim of the valley, ready to fight any and all, even the giant, who would dare to cross over to their side of the valley but not necessarily having the faith to drive the charge against the giant so long as he stayed in the valley and kept issuing his challenges and insults and didn't come any closer. Would any one of us be the one to charge the giant? And that's exactly the point. Would any one of us be the one to place our faith and our life totally and completely in God's hands and charge the giant in his name after this blasphemer has so defied and insulted Israel and thereby the name of Yahweh. How many times in our lives are we faced with our own Goliaths when we are in a situation that, cho that requires us to choose to make a stand for God? How many times is there the one person who will threaten all kinds of severe consequences if we choose to make and hold to the stand that we know we should? Maybe they'll have us fired from our jobs, or evicted 
from our homes. Maybe they'll sue us for everything we're worth and then some, and even if they don't win, the court fees will be so high that we'll be in debt up to our eyeballs for the remotely foreseeable future. They'll use the fact that they have rights that we're infringing upon by following our faith, and they'll use the laws of the land to persecute us. These are the swords and spears and shields of the giants we face. So the question is, how do we do, do we respond? Do we stand like the soldiers of Israel, ready to face these things when they find us, but keeping our heads down as best we can to avoid drawing attention to ourselves, or do we choose to wear the whole armor of God and place our lives completely in his hands and charge the proverbial giant in our lives? Let's go ahead and take a look at the entrance of a figure who did stand up and charge the giant. We're told that David, who was the youngest of his brothers, stayed behind with his father to help him tend the sheep while his brothers went to war in Saul's army. Jesse sends David to the battlefield with some provisions for his brothers and to get news of the battle to bring home to his father. While there, David hears Goliath issue his challenge to the armies of Israel again. We're going to pick up in verse 22 of chapter 17. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel as he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. So here we have this young man, probably not even out of his teens yet, who's come to bring some provisions to his brothers in the army. And he hears the giant issue his challenge to the armies of Israel. He then looks around and wonders why nobody's doing anything about it. Why is nobody taking up the challenge and standing against this uncircumcised, Worshipper of abominations who is defying the armies of the living God. Now think about David's words here. This is no romantic, hero-worshipping young teen who wants to see a battle. This is a young man who recognizes that Goliath isn't just challenging and defying Israel. But rather, he is defying the God of Israel. David isn't wondering why someone won't step up and be a hero, but rather why no man in the army of God's chosen people is standing up and, and placing his faith in God to challenge this idol worshiper who dares to blaspheme the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. It doesn't even once strike David that Goliath's size or strength might be something to worry about. To David, the only real factor in all of this is that Goliath has challenged and blasphemed God. And someone who claims to be a servant of God should answer the challenge and put this giant and the Philistines in their place, so that, as David says later, all would know that there truly was a God in Israel, and that he is the only God and is all-powerful. This is the faith that we should aspire to show within ourselves. When the world presents us with challenges to our faith, we should recognize that the world isn't just challenging us. The world is defying God and making the claim that it can threaten things that are more important to us than he is. Much like when the Satan and Job challenged that Job was only faithful so long as his life wasn't on the line. The world issues this same challenge to us time and again throughout our own lives albeit in much more subtle ways. It is up to us to decide whether we stand back and cower like the soldiers of Israel, 
or stand up and face the challenge like David, the shepherd's son. Now, let's look at the reaction of David's eldest brother, Eliab. Verses 28 through 30. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him and toward another, and spake after the same manner. And the people answered him again after the former men. I'm going to have this is where I'm going to have to ask y'all to bear with me, because this is about the place where my pages one way or another got out of order, and I can't apologize enough for that. So, Eliab overhears David speaking to the troops, asking why nobody will fight Goliath, trying to encourage someone to do so. This is the end of the page. It's not either. I'm so sorry, y'all. Um, rather than being spurred by his little brother's faith to step up and try to set a good example for his brother and his fellow soldiers, Eliab chastises his brother with some really harsh words. He accuses David of shirking his duties and responsibilities at home and leaving their father's sheep shepherdless and using the provisions that he brought down as a pretense to come and watch the battle. Rather than recognize that David's words come from a genuine faith in and love for God, he accuses David of being a prideful and naughty young boy who's just there to stir up trouble. Finally, David's words reach Saul's ears, and we see Saul's re Oh, no, wait. I'm sorry. I skipped a paragraph. I'm good today. Have we ever encountered this in our own lives? Have we ever had moments where the world and the influences of the world present us a challenge, and sometimes even to the whole body? And when we try to stand up for the truth and wonder why so many aren't doing so, we are chastised by a brother or sister trying to cause trouble. Have we been accused of trying to cast stumbling blocks when, they're, when we're really just trying to help our brothers and sisters overcome the influences of the world that are leading them astray? I'm sure we can all think of times that we've faced that. Pardon me again, y'all. Finally, David's words reach Saul's ears, and we see Saul's reaction to him. We're going to look at verses 31 through 39. And when the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul and sent for him, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of them. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said to Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. The servant, Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, 
seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. And Saul armed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of brass upon his head. Also he armed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword upon his armor, and he said to go, for he had not proved them. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off. Saul hears about David's words to the troops about the giant. In response, the king sends for David to be brought to him. Now we have to remember that Saul already knows David as far as we know at this point. Saul's response to David is one of concern for the young man. He tries to reason with David to make him think about what he's getting himself into. Saul points out that not only is Goliath the giant of a man, but he is also a man who has been fighting wars since he was probably about David's age. David tells Saul that he has personally fought and killed a lion and a bear with his own hands in order to save his father's sheep from them. He proceeds to say that Goliath will be like the lion and the bear that he had slain. This is an interesting statement for David to make. Because it shows how he sees this whole situation. He sees it not as a soldier, but as a shepherd. David isn't fighting a war for a nation, or a king, or for some kind of wounded pride because of the giant's insults. He's fighting off a predator that has come to tear apart the flock of God. This is precisely how we should look at things when the body is threatened, either from within or from without. By the worldly influences that would take us and make us dedicated slaves to the worship of our own fleshly lusts. We are instructed to be shepherds of God's flocks as well as members of it. And the worldly influences that would come and take away some of our fellow lambs are simply predators to be dealt with and ended without question and without second thought. As far as Saul is concerned here, his attempts to dissuade David from fighting Goliath come from a genuine concern. But that doesn't make them any less of a problem. Have we ever run into brothers and sisters that, when we're dealing with a spiritual problem, or a challenge presented to us from the world or from within the body, try to convince us to just back down and quietly sit out? Maybe they're concerned for our well-being, not wanting us to get wrapped up in fellowship problems, something that can lead to some unfortunately vicious and angry encounters with the brothers and sisters that we might have to be correcting. Maybe they don't simply want us to rock the boat, so to speak, in the body any more than it already is. Whatever their reason, and however well-intentioned they may be, it doesn't erase the fact that they are trying to dissuade us from doing what we know to be right. And that's exactly what Saul is doing here. So Saul finally relents, and he tells David to go out and to do battle with the Goliath. And he arms David by giving him his own armor and sword to go and to fight the giant with, probably hoping more than anything that at least the armor might help David to stay alive. David puts on the armor and the sword, and he turns to Saul and says that he cannot go to battle with these things because he has not proved them. There's something to be said for the fact that David would choose to leave behind the king's armor. Any other man would have seen it as a great honor to wear the king's own armor into battle. David, on the other hand, just tries it on and decides to leave it behind. Why do we think he did that? Notice what Saul, Dave, what Saul gave David to wear. Helmet of brass, coat of mail, and a sword. 
Notice anything familiar about it? Add a spear and a shield, and David would have been going into battle equipped exactly like the very giant that he was facing. You think maybe David avoided that on purpose? It's something to think about. Anyway, David takes off the armor and the sword and takes his sling and goes, deciding to put his faith in God rather than the armor and weapons made by man. Pick up verses 40 or verse 40. I'm going to read through to 52. And he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a script. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with, with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. And I will come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee, and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all the assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose, and came and drew nigh to meet David, and David hasted, and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slung it and smote the Philistine in his forehead that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until thou cometh to the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way to Sheram, even unto Gath and unto Ekron. There's a lot to discuss in these last 12 verses. First, after David leaves Saul's tent, putting off and leaving behind the armor that Saul had offered him, he goes out to a nearby stream and chooses five smooth stones out of it. Now David didn't just bend down and pick up the nearest five rocks. It says he chose out five smooth stones. He chose five smooth stones. He took the time to look for and search for the five stones that were going to be best for the situation that he was facing. We're going to be coming back to these stones a little bit later in this talk, and for those of us, Lord willing, that will be in Clinton in a little less than a month now, we'll be referring to those stones again. David then gathers his things and proceeds to go about his task. David goes out to Goliath, and the giant's response is what you would expect. In short, he's insulted that this young whelp is what the Israelites have sent to fight him. 
It says he looked about and saw David and disdained him. He tells David that he will be that he will feed his carcass to the scavengers. David's response is truly profound. Then David said to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, and the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand. And I will smite thee, and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the hosts of the Philistines this day, unto the fowls of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know, that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David shows complete and utter contempt and disdain for Goliath's threats and challenges. He declares for all to hear that although this giant is well armed for war, he has defied the God of Israel. He declares that God will not just put the giant, but all the host of the Philistines to the sword that day, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And so, the battle ensues. Now, I want us to again take a moment to not just to imagine the scene here, but try placing yourselves among the soldiers on both sides, watching this whole thing unfold. The two armies lie in either rim of the valley, every man transfixed by the scene below them. On one side of the valley stands the hulking behemoth Philistine, armed and armored like a human tank, and very nearly the size of one. On the other side stands this young shepherd's boy, wearing no armor, carrying no weapon but a stick and a sling. All soldiers watching this encounter must be absolutely stunned at what they're seeing. This young boy must have a death wish, is surely a thought that is spread wide among the both sides. Goliath threatens the boy, and all must be thinking that surely this boy would lose his nerve. However, almost unthinkably, the young boy answers not with a threat of his own, but by scolding Goliath for defying the God of Israel and declaring that God would punish him for it this day. Finally, enraged by the insult of even being made to deal with this insolent whelp, let alone being scolded by him, the giant takes up his spear and charges at the boy, bounding toward him like a bear after its prey ready to skewer him and tear him to pieces in front of all the watching eyes of the soldiers of his country, among whom are David's own elder brothers. Rather than turn and run like any reasonable person would be expected, David runs to meet the giant. The soldiers of both sides watch as this young boy reaches for a stone in his pouch, placing it in his sling. giant and the boy continue to run at each other, and the giant, now with his spear raised, ready to deliver the cruel blow, the young boy whirls the sling over his head and whips out with it. And there's a sickening crack as the stone splits the giant's skull and buries itself within his head. The giant drops his spear and falls to his feet, face first, at the young boy's feet. The soldiers of both sides are stunned into silence, not sure, probably, that they can believe what they just witnessed. The Philistines watch in horror and amazement as David takes their champion's sword and uses it to remove his own head, showing beyond a shadow of a doubt that this giant is well and truly slain. Then a cry rises up from the camp of Israel, and it grows into a roar as the soldiers of the armies of the God of Israel shout that this day, God, the God of their fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has brought salvation to them and delivered them from the hands of their enemies and from the fear of this giant. To further the horror of the Philistines, the armies of Israel, now shouting with triumph that this miracle of deliverance that their God has worked for them, have begun charging the armies of the Philistines. Baffled and dismayed and disheartened at the loss of their champion, the Philistines flee in fear of the armies of Israel and of their God, 
who could cause their champion to be slain by just a young boy. After all, if the God of Israel could cause a young boy like this to slay a giant, imagine what he could do with the trained soldiers of Israel to them. The soldiers of the Philistines are pursued and wounded and slain throughout all the land, all the way back to Goliath's own home city of Gath. What an incredible miracle to witness this must have been. Through God's grace and help, David, a young shepherd's son, slew Goliath and was able to save Israel from a fate of slavery to idol worshippers. There's a lot here to consider. Mostly, I want to consider the difference between what Goliath armed himself with and what David armed himself with. Goliath came to battle armed with a shield and with a sword and with a spear. He put his trust firmly in the weapons and armor of man. David was also armed with three things. A sling, five small smooth stones, and his faith in God, which proved to be his greatest weapon. David faced Goliath with complete faith in God, knowing, not believing, but knowing that God would allow David to prevail over this Philistine giant. We should always arm ourselves just as David did, with the same faith that allowed him to face the giant in his life, and the many proverbial giants that he would be faced with later, with steadfast knowledge that so long as he strove to do righteously, God would allow him to prevail. There's something to be said for David's sling and the five smooth stones he had. Sling is not an easy weapon to use. I've tried it. It requires a lot of practice just to be able to consistently release the stone so that it flies in the direction you want and doesn't break a window. It takes hundreds of hours of practice to become well and truly accurate with it, especially to become accurate enough that you can use it successfully in a high-stress situation like a battle. Pardon me once again. What do we have that we should be armed with that could be likened to David's sling? Scripture. It is called the sword of the Spirit. Scripture does us no good in the situations, the tough situations in our lives, if we don't read it and study it every day of our lives, for hours a day, in order to become truly and deeply familiar with it, as David would have had to do with his sling. And shouldn't we become so familiar with Scripture that we can, in any given situation, search out and choose at least five references? to confront whatever situation, whatever giant we face, just as David chose out his five smooth stones, the best ones for the situation. If scriptures are sling, then our five smooth stones should be the verses and commandments that scripture gives us to tell us what we should do in any given situation. And with these two weapons at our side, along with true faith in God, is there any giant that we shouldn't be able to face and overcome? Yesterday, Brother Aaron gave a wonderful class about the Trinity Doctrine and some of the history of it, about the violence that these supposed and corrupted believers took up if you agreed or disagreed with them. Imagine the true believers if they came across any of these. Imagine yourself being a true believer, maybe trying to avoid contact, but eventually running into someone who believed in the Trinity or held some other false doctrine at this time. Facing the threat of violence simply by saying, no, that's not true. Do you say it? Are we prepared to say it? 
Are we prepared to face the giants in our lives that may cause us to lose our homes? That may cause us to lose our jobs, our livelihoods? Many governments in the nations are now threatening to take children away from their parents for beliefs that disagree with what the government wants to spread. I'm not saying that we should be out openly taking action or that we should seek these things out, but don't think they won't find us. So one last time, I want us to think about our lives. When we're faced with our own giants that challenge us to stand for our faith, or to become living sacrifices under the idolatry of the world, what do we do? And make no mistake, going along with these things, or even just avoiding speaking out against them, will eventually make you a living sacrifice unto the world, instead of unto God, as we should be. Do we stand at the edge of the battleground, waiting for someone else to take up the fight? Do we try to run or hide from these giants, avoiding the confrontation? Worse yet, do we somehow let ourselves create some false justification in our minds for going along with what the world wants of us? It would be the path of least resistance, certainly. Or do we, like the shepherd's son here, when we are confronted with these things, when these giants find us, boldly declare that there is a God in Israel? And that we serve him, and that we believe him, and that we have faith in him. And do we face the giants in his name and for his glory? Thank you.